and welcome to the Dice of Screaming podcast. Oh boy, they are screaming. And coughing. <laughs> well, they were. <laughs> they were. Yeah. I'm back. Oh boy. <laughs> it's good to be home again. Yeah, I got the place cleaned up all right in time for you. Yeah, not all of it. I saw what he did to the rug. Mm. That guy, I swear. Not letting him in here again. I can't I can't leave you alone at all. You invite all kinds of strangers over to I... trash the house. <laughs> I didn't have anything to do with it. He just kind of invited himself. I closed this. I thought I locked the door. It must have. I found stale cheese behind the curtains. What were you doing? Holding a food fight? <laughs> Popcorn everywhere. No, but hey, I'm Randy. Panties hanging off the lampstand. Oh, no. I don't know what kind of ladies you had over here. This place smells like a bordello. And as you can see, Mike is back with us. So, hey, we're back to full strength. Uh, yeah, I'm fine. It, it turns out, uh, it, you know, COVID was, was a little exhausting there uh, in terms of having, uh, like, literally, like, during a family vacation, uh, we just had an outbreak moment and it knocked us all down like dominoes, just one at a time. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, However, the household is completely cleared of everything. Everybody is tested clean. Uh, the vacationers have gone home. Uh, and, you know, life is back to normal. And everybody got away scot-free. We all recovered handsomely. So, happy end of the tale. And it's nice to be back here on the magic beans of gaming podcasting. What? Sold to you by some itinerant peddler who assures you a, a most miraculous event will follow if you bury them in your backyard. Yeah, that is us. We, we promised a lot and have delivered very little. But we do have content, so that's going to be something we're going to be covering today. And yeah, um, before we get too far into the content, yeah, we talked a lot about uh, solo gaming in the last uh, two episodes because it's pretty much just been me. So I wondered if uh, you caught any of that, Mike. <laughs> A little bit, yes, I did. Oh, okay. because I, I make a habit of uh, keeping tabs on our sound. Uh, one of the things I do is I will periodically go back through our episodes, and I will listen uh, and carefully measure some of the things about our speech patterns. Mostly because in our earliest episodes, you noticed that we had a lot of speech gaps, a lot of hemming, hawing, uh, er, uh, um, uh, 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 in between words. And addressing that was one of the early things that got me started listening to podcasts and then comparing our sound to the sound of other podcasts we've enjoyed over the years, trying to pick up a little patina of professionalism. So I, I did listen to our last two. Okay. There was a little bit of a wild acid trip uh, a couple of weeks ago. Mm. I, which, by the way, I listened to that one with a fever and chills, uh, wrapped up in a giant blanket, curled up in a chair, and <laughs> literally the eyes popped out of my head. I was like, holy cats. <laughs> that is not where I thought he would go with this. <laughs> I said fly solo. I, I didn't say, like, take the Corsair out of the barn and just go tearing through the skies, blasting holes and everything you see. Uh, but it was a thing of beauty, dude. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> you made an impression. Uh, now, I liked the second one better. Uh, really... Well, yeah, it, it was uh, all <clears throat> meta aside. It was really hard to get into the meat of the matter, what I wanted to, with that uh, 
little segment I did you know, personal with Wardu because yeah, the guy's just not he's not really uh, articulate and that, that's being nice and the, the second one I like uh, especially after Jason's calling we were able to kind of, uh, focus it in on a couple of like token quest it's kind of hard to cover every single one of those books that you pick your own path choose your own adventure and uh fighting fantasy books because oh. it, it exploded for a while yeah once the, the like the very early ones emerged there was this surge in them i mean people quickly realized that there was a popular market for this and these were not very large cumbersome books you know th these were not like oh we're gonna have to put out a big leather bound edition and you know like the, the production costs no you could knock these out in the paperback market and they would fly off the shelves so, yeah, yeah, there was a lot. I mean, the fact that they even had miniatures made for them. Um, that there was, uh, you know, society, small little uh, like book groups dedicated to meeting, as I said in the second one, kind of floored me. Like, hey, you know, you have a bunch of people interested in fantasy gaming. Why don't you, you know, break out a fantasy rule book and, you know, go to town? But again, it what some people enjoyed it, the solo gaming. Uh, vibe, you know, that it was you against uh, the author of the book. I spent some happy hours, you know, making choices that, <laughs> you know, oftentimes ended horrifically. Sure. <laughs> I'm stepped in the green slime. You know, just... <laughs> oh, man. Has, I, I gotta go remember. Where was I? I have to, you know, track back about six, seven uh, chapters and find where I, where. Take to the passage to the left or the passage to the right. Left is not a good option. <laughs> yeah, I, there were a few of them where I did remember it. Like, oh man, I know exactly where this went last time. This this ended horribly. Do not go down that passage. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I forgot to mention uh, that I made a note of was is, uh, another thing people did back then too was before there were saves in video games. Well, much probably uh, like saves in the, the text adventures and others where you could save your results and then continue on. And if you failed horribly, you could reload from that previous position without having to start all the way back from the beginning. But there was no quick save. The right, there was no quick save. anytime, anywhere had not really come into place. There were like save points where, okay, I gotta go back to town so I can save game. And, you know, if you failed somewhere between point A and your return to point A, you were just hosed. Yeah, there was one game book, I can't remember which it was specifically, but had a um, you could um, save a uh, chapter in it had a number of slots and then go back and revisit that little uh, previous oh. choice path and it resembled a lot what would happen later with quick saves and stuff like that so yeah solo gaming kind of fascinating from the uh, perspective that it's playing with yourself but um, <laughs> hey that's how a lot of us got started so uh, cheap jokes you can expect no yeah. less from us no. <laughs> that's why we're the magic beans we're going for that low-hanging fruit. It's all right. Well, uh, I think we beat that subject. But we aspire to be the giant thin clouds sitting on the treasure. That would be great. That would be awesome. I would. But we're not. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that, that beats that to that. Um, so, let's, hey, let's, uh, let's take a peer into the future. The Mercado Mancer, while he's been on vacation with you, still valid. Yeah, okay. The, the Mercado Mancer... If, if people are familiar with my tradition on this, when I botch a prediction, uh, that is the end of that uh, career. 
we, we go find another diviner of the future and we try a different type. We're not giving up on the Mechaomancer just yet because this was intrusion by like disease. It, it had absolutely nothing to do with an error of the Mechaomancer. This was a uh, externally induced emergency hiatus for me. So Mechaomancer is still covered in glory. And it was absolutely correct. We are doing the meta of TSR, a kind of panned back examination of the wide variety of products that they put forward. And this time we've got the interchange going where, you know, it'll be both of our thoughts bouncing back and forth, which I feel like is the atmosphere we both work best in. Yeah, absolutely. And next week, the Mechaomancer gazes into the swords and knives hung about this place of honor and sees a wide-ranging discussion on some of the amazing women of science fiction, fantasy, and gaming that as publishers, as authors, as editors have made massive contributions to the genre. Uh, and frankly, you know, like, don't quite get the same level of acknowledgement, credit, familiarity that some of the biggest names in sci-fi and fantasy do. Uh, and yet, they were ever-present. They were such big, powerful forces in the world of writing, and so many of us brushed up against their creativity. They inspired a lot. And this one is just hats off to all of them. So look forward to that all in right. our next session. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll come prepared. Maybe if you're not, but we are, or we'll try. Probably you're more prepared than we are, to be honest. Oh, quite possibly. And it's you know, like uh, very likely uh, that we may forget a few perennial favorites. So if you don't hear a favorite name of an author that you like in our next session, by all means, call and name drop. Yeah. We'll, like, we will absolutely play that and you know cheerlead because there is some great reading out there Mm -hmm. And I've done some of it lately because I had like 10 days off uh, where I was effectively trapped in a house. And there are worse circumstances than being trapped, quarantined in a house with a skilled chef. Yeah, mm. that part, that part was not bad. That part was, uh, that was actually pretty cool. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're all right, bud, and you're back. So... All right, well, let's get into it then. So we're talking about the topic at hand, which was the meta of TSR. And yeah, a lot of people are aware that TSR produced a great variety of games, especially in the early days. Uh, they'd kind of moved, once they got Dungeons & Dragons out of the gate, they moved on to other things like Tractics, Don't Give Up the Ship. <laughs> uh, Fight in the Skies. Yeah, or what would become Dawn Patrol later on. Yeah. And uh, Panzer Warfare, Cavaliers and Roundheads, like Cavaliers and Roundheads, that was in 73. Like that actually predates their publication of uh, like the formal published yeah. sold version of Dungeons and Dragons by a year. Uh, so, well, yeah, of course, Chainmail is another what, very first one, but yeah, proto version before DD was DD. Uh, but a lot of these were just war games, they also did like a John Carter. Uh, game. Oh, true. But uh, uh, 
a lot of people had forgotten that uh, Boot Hill came out as early as it did. I mean, that was the original edition was in 75. Yeah, right on the <laughs> hot on the heels, they came out with a kind of a simulation. That first Boot Hill was really rough. It was about the second or third printing, I think, edition yeah. that they got finally a more focused in scope of what it was to role play a campaign in the Wild West. Uh, Metamorphosis Alpha was out there in 76. Uh, Empire of the Petal Throne, uh, for those who remember that. Uh, yeah, that was a campaign know. setting. But um, again, yeah, it was 75, and of course, that did not become one of their longstanding properties that uh, Mario yeah, Barton no. off on his own on that one. But, you know, Metamorphosis Alpha in 76, it gets the appellation from many people that this is the first science fiction RPG. And it is. I mean, effectively, you know, it may not have had as grand a design and as wide a scope as the games that came immediately after it. But it was, at that moment in 1976, was the first. And it gets that award, that nod. Like, hey man, you did it first. Yeah. You proved it could be done. They put a lot of effort in the early days to get as many games out as they could because they had kind of a... I would like to say a fountainhead of talent, people who had been wanting to do stuff outside of Avalon Hill and many of the other structured kind of more stodgy war games, just like SPI was putting out a lot of fantasy, science fiction, and uh, World War II based war games. Oh, very. And uh, they, you know, they were even more comprehensive than Avalon Hill. Although that's kind of hard to say with Panzer Leader and uh, <laughs> Squad Leader behind you. But you know, SBI, man, uh, the, the Tobruk campaign um, and uh, the camp struggle for North Africa, you know, the much memed like, oh, this game takes uh, 12,000 hours to play or basically, yeah, yeah, with the double water ration for the Italians because they had to have uh, uh water to boil their macaroni supposedly in it and no look it, it's a thing you look driving it over the Alps each with the road Mexican well yeah but they you know this was a North African campaign that was meant to be as an exhaustive examination of the style of warfare and logistics that was that did really encapsulate the style of war in the desert you weren't you didn't have anything. There was nothing nearby. Everything had to be shipped in or flown in. Oh. So, yeah. But those games, uh, TSR got a reputation early for being kind of first on the scene with a lot of things. Um, Boot Hill. You know, Cowboy, if you had to say, like, what is a game, what would be a genre besides sword and sorcery well uh, cops and robbers i mean we all start with good guys bad guys sort of thing and cowboys and indians is right up there and boot hill wasn't about cowboys and indians per se but it was about and we've covered this before it was about um all dogs and guns like yeah it was it, it was basically about surviving yeah it, it, uh, you could go into town as the good guys and say that's the Jones gang. They robbed the stagecoach. We've got to stop them, boys. Or we're the Jones gang. We're going to rob that stagecoach. We're going to rob the, the sheriff big... comes after us. We're going to take him out, along with all his deputies. 
Uh, that's when the DM says, okay, they've uh, sent in a handful of Pinkerton agents who are coming for your uh, hide. And, and I got something to say. I'm going to say it with lead. They, they got a hanging judge waiting for you with your name on a piece of paper. So you better survive this encounter uh, and escape. Yeah. Right, we're making a run for the border. But it is a wide open <laughs> field. I mean, if you really want to look at it, the yeah. emphasis wasn't so much on... Uh, fighting against savages, uh, indigenous people who were being displaced by uh, settlers. It was actually about just surviving the rough and tumble area. You know, even just putting, I just want to be a farmer, a homesteader. Well, look out for that cattle baron. Yeah, <clears throat> cattle punk. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff that could be played in there. But of course, played on the surface, it was basically about having duels in the street. And that's what the original Boot Hill was about, and that's the name, Boot Hill. Yeah, aside from Metamorphosis Alpha, obviously Gamble World came out a couple of years right after that. Uh, you know, cementing their place as, like, that they had expanded the concepts <clears throat> that they initially investigated in Metamorphosis Alpha. And we have discussed that in another podcast. Pretty proud of them for that one. Yeah, but let's move on to the next but one that really comes up. I, I did want to mention the original game, Dungeon. That, oh, okay. That's 75. Okay, that that goes back quite a ways. Yeah, we we kind of touched about it, but a whale, way, way back, I think. Um, yeah, Dungeon was basically their, like, hey, if we can't sell the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing concept, let's sell a board game. And yeah. that didn't go well with Parker Brothers or, uh, what's the other big one? It was Parker Brothers. Uh, Hasbro? Well, Hasbro was one of them, but... Uh, Milton Bradley. Milton Bradley, yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. They, uh, they all took a pass at it. Nah. I know. Which, I mean, that's like one of those great blunders of all time. Now, obviously, as time went on, Hasbro ultimately uh, acquired WOTC, which is like the company that acquired TSR. Uh, but at the time, you know, when the moment to watch this explosion of creativity happen was happening, it was pretty much an industry of old guard board game makers. Like, oh, we need something the whole family can play that's appealing to children. Uh, and that is why the war game industry was such a like tiny niche. There were yeah. just so, it was such a micro market uh, that when anything was born out of it, that did in fact have mass appeal, like Dungeons and Dragons, they didn't take it seriously. Oh, those are those war gamers that make those like little box things that like go on the shelf that uh, like only like five engineering students uh, have ever played this. So, <laughs> and they were wrong. Big right. Just like Avalon Hill tried to get into the family board game market with a lot of different ones. Uh, their real strength lay in being able to recreate for an entertaining uh long weekend or a snowed-in vacation, you could recreate the entire campaign of the uh, Eastern Front in a box. <laughs> and uh, it was a lot of fun to play, but if this required a more serious commitment than it did to say, like, playing Life or Husker Do or uh, <clears throat> Hungry Hungry Hippos. I mean, yeah, I know I'm being a little crass on that one. Okay, yeah. But, uh, you know, Life, Monopoly, uh, several other board games, Sorry, I mean, oh, sorry is based yeah. after a German. Now, I miss uh, Stratico. I loved Stratico. That yeah. was a fun game. 
But before we get in too far oh, off in uh, old, old man territory, let's, let's refocus. Let's into the 80s. As right. Let, let's put the brakes on this. I want to take a look at another company here that did about the same thing. And we'll cover this in a later episode, but I'm just going to plant the seed on this one. This Chaosium going for all the literary genres out there. Like, they literally took Stormbringer, Call of Cthulhu, just ripped them right out and just said, you know, off the shelves and said, this is ours. We're doing a full-on game on this one. Yeah, they staked their claim. Uh, they targeted uh, IPs that were literary favorites. Like um, Ring World. And they did well at it. Okay? Yeah. They, you'll notice that they were not skimping. They did not... Uh, like skimp on the development of the product or the development of the, the core game concepts. Uh, it seemed to me like they put a lot of time and effort in to make it as worthwhile as possible uh, to to honor the original material. So yeah, there's a reason we still to this day have mad love for Chaosium. Yeah, they did a really good job too. And other it's companies, not accidental. You know, Game Designers Workshop uh, put their foot down heavily on things like uh, Twilight Two Thousand transitioning from a wargaming kind of atmosphere oh, to a role-playing yeah. military adventure which was the thing and um yeah there was a lot of uh companies that kind of had once they got a hold of a concept they once they got like traveler for game designers workshop they went ahead and started expanding oh my god indeed they did uh, they expanded pardon not me about that <laughs> Uh, they expanded rapidly because there was such a flush of success. Um, now, this has to be parsed in terms of understanding that that success was limited to the niche category of gaming. Uh, but, you know, for small publishers, uh, strong sales, they saw a much more immediate return that was more relevant. This is yeah. not like, you know, uh, Simon and Schuster. You know, <laughs> if we don't sell 14 million copies, then it wasn't worth our time. No, these were people who like, dude, I can't believe we did a print run of 10,000 and it sold out. Oh, we got to do another print run. And like five print runs later, they're like, wow, we really hit a nerve here. We got to do something like this again, man. Yeah. And when, you know, Dungeons Dragons came out, it really did hit a nerve and other companies were quick to pick up on it. So yeah. I just wanted to put a pin in there that that's a future episode we'll be covering is about Chaosium, the meta of Chaosium. But TSR, man, they were not afraid to branch out from Snitch Revenge. <laughs> Yes, this is revenge. Which is a crazy game that <clears throat> only can be imagined on certain amounts of LSD and uh, laudlum. That was Tom Wham. Yeah, oh yeah, Tom Wham, man, the, kind of the genius that he is. That guy could make a game, like, in an afternoon. I know, like, Reinser Kozna is really respected, but Tom Wham, take a second look at that guy. He's like, yeah, that guy, he has a classic history of, like, you could just leave him in a room and say, like, dude, can you make us a game? It's like, all right, let's see what we can come up with. And you got results. Yeah, yeah, he wasn't the kind that could be put on a production schedule. No. That, that guy, when inspiration struck, he went just, with it. Just leave him alone. The magic will happen in its own time. Uh, I, I, if we look at the meta of TSR as it emerged into the 80s, they had this initial, like, five-year, no, about seven-year rush uh, through the 70s where like they were spreading their wings trying a lot of different things and moving more into role-playing games and away from tabletop miniature uh, 
Or, yeah, strategic board Classic games. Classic strategic board games. Um, and you see that continue as a trend way through the 80s. It just becomes much more obvious. And, like, they came out of the gate swinging with Top Secret. Yeah, let's, let's we covered Top Secret in the past, but let's just take a look at that. How crazy is it in the middle of the Cold War to come out with a game that comprehensive on spy matters. I mean, they listed so many different, in the back of the glossary there, so many political groups that were on watch lists and terrorist organizations. So the oh yeah, the World administrator, Watch. the uh, self-titled game master, could come out with various types of enemies to confront the players with working for the home organization. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> remember, though, that at that precise moment, uh, with the Cold War still at looming large in everyone's minds, uh, international espionage was at an all-time high. Uh, not to mention, you know, like, an inordinate amount of political instability throughout Europe meant that there were these incredible, there was an incredible diversity of agencies and, uh, you know, NGOs organizations operating at the same time so you could sandwich together almost any kind of scenario and top secret did a superb job of throwing it all in there together so that the administrator or game creator uh, could build scenario after scenario around the globe with just massive creativity every single time and you didn't have to like rip on the same note it doesn't have to be oh another battle with boris and natasha yeah <laughs> you know it, it didn't have to be the same thing again and again although you could sit and watch during the uh weekends or excuse me weekends weekdays you could catch mission impossible and just the first five minutes have your oh. mission for next week's game yep stealing that and spy lore was at an all-time high too like the james bond movies yeah were, like on their like ascending zenith of popularity, uh, there was a great deal of '70s material. Uh, that, if you remember, if the year is 1980, then the decade before that literally represented a massive flood of spy literature, of spy movies, spy television shows, and it it could range from everything uh, like from your Mission Impossible and the James Bond series. It could. The man from Uncle, even get smart. I there you go. You're you're going where I was going to go, which is if you wanted a little sense of humor in it, there's get smart. Missed me by that much. Mel Brooks uh, and yeah. Buck Henry and Don Adams. Yeah, the lead. Yeah, the great Don Adams. So loved that guy. Can't can't say enough good things about that. As we're gushing about Top Secret, let's just say that. They, it, they came out the gate swinging with that. Many modules was featured a lot in Dragon Magazine with little articles about new spy gear, weapons, and administration outfits for uh, new classes of characters. It was well supported. And literally, I still say that there's almost nothing you can't do except with uh, sword and sorcery with the top secret system. A little obscure and convoluted in its contrivances, but... It is a solid system. It's personal based and revolves around skills. It was also TSR's really first skill based role playing game. 
true. This was a little deviation from principle for them. But you would need people with skills because if, just look at Mission Impossible. Everybody had a different oh, skill exactly. set that they brung to the table to complete the mission. And they understood that like in lieu of classes, that it would be the skills that made the difference between the characters that made the team concept workable. So if you pre-assume that people buying a TSR product are part of like a D&D group and you're encouraging them to try something different, you needed a way to have them like, you know, like I'm the, the version of the cleric, which is like, I've got medical training in addition to espionage, you know, mine is, and this person over here is like communications and electronic, uh, electronic yeah. surveillance and uh, bypassing locks and things like that. And then over here you have the person who is specialized in demolitions and heavy weapons. And yeah, the bureau, the different bureaus that your characters come from, of course, was confiscation, investigation, and assassination. Yeah. Originally, they did expand it, but yeah, uh, that was a really good concept. And that's the meta of TSR. That's the spoiler alert um, that we're going to do is Mike drop right here. Not dropping you, Mike, but <laughs> dropping the microphone. I've been dropped enough. Oh, oh boy. On your head. And the meta of TSR was making games that put a team together. They were always very team oriented, even like in Boot Hill. Yeah, you were all gunslingers packing pistols and shotguns and rifles, but everybody had a little bit of a different emphasis on which one was which. But <laughs> All right, well, we're going to get to the break right here and we'll be right back. So stick around with more of the meta of TSR as we just revealed the real meta, the team concept. So we'll catch you. See ya. All right, and we're back. Hey, did you miss us? Oh. <laughs> well, then shoot again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'll get us next time. Put a little lead on it. <laughs> well, I want to I want to make a couple of notes. Like you've got Crime Fighters that came out in '81, uh, and uh, that was like yet another TSR release. Um, you had Gangbusters in '82. Yeah, which uh, was a re kind of repackaging. Star Frontiers in '82. Yeah, that that was a big event. Uh, oh my gosh, the Fantasy Forest board game. No, the, the Escape from New York board game. Those were 80, 81. Okay, so, like, even in the 80s, like, you see this uh, wonderful variety. Like, they, they were not captive. You know, the world perceives often that D&D was, like, the only thing these people did. Uh, and, yeah, it's the thing with the greatest meteor-like impact. Uh, and I, I'm afraid that because of that meteoric impact, a lot of the other lesser species were wiped from the globe. Uh, and have dropped out of collective memory. But these wonderful things were happening, and that's the environment that TSR was in that era. Yeah, and what we were talking about right before the break was, is the meta, is that TSR had this wonderful concept of, right from the get-go. Maybe it was has something to do with the classes. I'm not 100% sure about this, and I can't really verify it, but I'm just speculating here. That with the kind of class setup of Dungeons & Dragons, they transferred this into top secret with the bureaus. Like you had the Confiscation Bureau, the Assassination Bureau, the OO Bureau, and Investigation. And as we said, yeah, they would add others, but it kind of, where you would have a spy 
genre. It was usually one, maybe two people with a little, or one person with maybe a couple ancillary characters doing the spy work. They took Top Secret and turned it into a team-based game. And yeah, they did a little bit with Boot Hill, but with Gangbusters, uh, that goes to the next one. Now we're at Cops and Robbers as a genre. And yeah. this, again, they Crime put... Fighters and Gangbusters. They had, like, in Private Investigators, Private Dicks, uh, hard-nosed journalists who were going to do nothing to stop to get to the truth. Different types of law enforcement. So you would create a diverse group of characters from different backgrounds that all had the same goal to take down the mobsters. And, of course, it also had the idea that you could play the mobsters. Yeah, again, a forgotten element is you know, like the, the flexibility of some of these games. Uh, the the vehicle combat rules in Gangbusters, it, it alone is still a marvel oh. of mine. It, very simple without being oh. overly complicated, but yet yeah. thorough. Yeah, well, I mean, they were dealing with a slightly smaller variety of available vehicles. Right. Genre time period they were placed in. So, you know didn't have to cope with quite as much variety whereas in, as you move into futuristic style games uh, you wind up with this enormous variety yeah of you could be so, doing anything from uh, a cart being pulled by some kind of draft animal to, to hover bike chase yep <laughs> uh, you have to be able to cover that and then yeah we just covered star frontiers so they did an amazing job with that as well again placing the characters into a team-based scenario but another uh, game that came out that uh, some people forget, but we don't, is Marvel Superheroes. Hey, man. Now we're talking like 1984, uh, along with the release of Indiana Jones. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that one in a minute. Let, the, let, let's, 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 we'll let, save the worst for last. You know, this was, uh, again, it, it's part of a golden age where they were just constantly, there was new, 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 right in your face all the time. I cannot stress that enough. Uh, that you think of it as taking a long time for all of these things to happen. But for those of us who were right there at that precise moment, and believe me, by between 1979 and 1984, 85, we were firmly entrenched in the gaming atmosphere. And my God, it was like being under machine gun fire. Like, oh, jeez, they're pelting me with material. Oh, it's too much. I can't take it. We got to pull back. Pull back. <laughs> We're moving to safety. Get the children and women to the higher ground. It just, it was overwhelming and impressive at the same time. And that gets us to things like Marvel superheroes, which, boy, was that timely. Because... Everybody suddenly wanted a superhero property. Yeah, there'd have been other game companies that done it, like Hero yeah. Games, Champions. Yeah. But here was one where instead of trying to replicate the comics genre, they just basically said, Hey, how about we take Marvel Comics property and just run with that? Who wouldn't want to be Captain America? Why make a character when you can play Captain America or Iron Man or Spider-Man? Mm -hmm. And the comics storyline of Marvel at that time was hitting its highest I they were at their golden age I know that it doesn't confer directly with the golden age strata timeline of comics but at that point in time in the 80s 
Marvel Comics was firing on all cylinders. Everything in the 70s had led up to this, and, you know, you had the Secret Wars, you had the X-Men. The late 70s, early 80s, like, I, who was not a big Marvel fan, and I I own that, okay? Look, it's, at the time, I was not a big Marvel fan. I was a big DC reader. Even I brushed up against some of the wonderful storylines that Marvel was putting out, and I looked upon them with great admiration and affection, like the Dark Phoenix saga. Oh, Jean Grey. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that came out of nowhere. Yeah, it was fantastic. I was reading it. I was like, man, I have been missing out. So Marvel was a hot property and TSR was very smart to jump on board. And in their case, I this is the thing I tactically disagree with. Champions had a love for the entire genre. Yes. And their respect for it lingers in my imagination today because they made so much possible possibilities were limitless Um, however for what it was the marvel superheroes game they riffed on like let's give people what the things that they like the most you know like what do they love about marvel comics and they gave you that so i'm not dissing them but i'm saying that it was a little more limited in scope right it was it was as more specific taking a step away from what they had been where gangbusters yeah you lakefront city could just as well be minnesota's or excuse me, Minneapolis at the time, or New York or Boston. It was personally, we knew it was Chicago. It was Chicago. Ah, big Chicago. The Windy City. Hog Butcher. But you could do anything with this game set in that genre. If you were uh, going across the Midwest looking for a John Dillinger type character, like, uh, what was it called? Mad Dog Johnny. Was there a John Dillinger kind of homage? You could do that where you were just agents trying to track down this nefarious uh, bank robber. We've got to stop Killer Kelly. Yep. And that could be your goal. And um, <laughs> Or you could be Killer Kelly and his traveling boys. <laughs> right. It didn't matter. There's not a bank you've got that's safe from us. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, Marvel Superheroes was a more focused but still team-driven game where, you know, they would... How would... A person who wanted to play Wolverine, Spider-Man, and uh, Captain America find themselves on the same mission or in alliance. Well, you know, as Marvel Comics did, they just grouped characters together willy-nilly to sell uh, titles. Yeah. Hey, man, you get your Avengers scenario, you got to pick bigger enemies. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, not dissing them for that choice. But Um, the advice they gave to Game Masters running that stuff, or as they called the editor... I did like that. Let's go big or go home. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, they gave a lot of advice, like, how do you put characters of different power and levels together? How do you put it together? Well, just do it like they do it in the comics. Just, and yeah, no better example needed than just pick up a comic book and read it. Um, I would also like to say that out of all the things that worked in their favor at that time, they had a lot of money and a lot of clout. And even though we still say that, hey, those were the days of satanic panic, in a lot of ways it was driving sales. I mean, there was a lot of a lot of curiosity, and it was a kind of a thing that became its own genre later on. But that will be a conversation for another time. But getting on back to the main track of this, yeah, we had already talked about Indiana Jones. So <laughs> uh, this is again where they failed badly. Um, 
Yeah, Indiana Jones, the role-playing game. Sounds great. Uh, exactly. On the surface level, like when you hear the name, I mean, you're thinking of the movies. And, oh my gosh, what great movies they were. You know, that, that first movie is still one of my personal all-time favorite events in film. And I saw that in theaters and it was just like, this is the coolest thing ever! Uh, and the second movie, I was finding myself wondering, well, okay, I mean... It's not like it wasn't fun. There was some pretty cool stuff there, but you know, just not like the first one. And by the time we get down to like the fourth, I was just like, okay. Hey, third one was all right. Come on, Sean Connery and Harrison Ford trying to compete for screen time. Come on. Now. Oh yeah. And uh, wait a minute, was coming up. Was that the Crystal Skull? No, no, that was uh, the Last Crusade. Last Crusade. Yes. Come on. The choice of Christ's cup, the Holy Grail. What it was? Yeah, yeah. What it was. I like that. Okay, and I've, I've actually totally ripped from that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, that having been said, the execution of the actual manufactured game was not their greatest work at all. Oh, yeah. Well, you got to play Indiana Jones. One lucky player played Indiana Jones. Yeah, which you already hamstrung yourself right there. Okay? You, if you wanted to widen the franchise... Uh, pinning it so that one person is the only person who gets to be the star of the show is a total failure in terms of... The others of get to play Marion Ravenwood in short round. Oh, please, uh, no. Great. Yeah. No one wants to do that, and it was an impossible sell, but they put a lot of money into this because it was a big ticket item. People were excited. And this is where they failed. This is where they lost their meta. They quit making a game about playing as a team. Like, if they had presented, like, hey, you're working for Indiana Jones, the professor, and, are, and you're doing other things in the world and genres that the movies touched upon, yeah. they would have been just fine. Having Great. him be a kind of Game Master's deus ex machina, where, you know, uh, you guys meet at a university in Prague, and he explains what he needs, like, your team to be doing... Like, and I'm headed over to, you know, like, I'm headed to Amsterdam for purely intellectual reasons. <laughs> <I> just, <clears throat> he's handling something else, and then the team would, would be then made up of a people with a variety of skills. Uh, like, you guys are headed to Morocco, uh, and in the sands outside of this city, you know, we hope that you will find the thing that we are looking for. I, that would have been epic. Okay, I think people Yeah, because they it. could have embraced the pulp genre and another game company, uh, which was Hero Games, hit the pulp fantasy button Bingo. hard. Yeah. This they did everything that the indie or sorry, the TSR's Indiana Jones did not, and it served them well. And that's when you kind of started to see that TSR shifted. And they started running into problems. There's rumors that just like the E.T. game uh, buried Atari, and they ended up burying the uh, E.T. cartridges because everybody was returning them. Indiana Jones was not moving. It initially sold well. People were interested. But then when they understood that it was full of cheap tricks, like a little red card reader to, oh, put the uh, magic crystal over the red text so you could read the hidden messages. And trademarking Nazis. Really? Yeah. I know that some bean counter probably in accounting or legal uh, got a hold of that, but oh yeah, we better make sure that all the uh, terms are copyrighted. 
with copyrights Nazis, you dick. Yeah. yeah, try to make that one hold up in court, you know, uh, which, you know, hint, it wouldn't. So uh, that was one of their momentary failures. And we highlight that precisely because it's the moment they moved away from the integrated team concept where everybody has a strong suit, everybody has a weak suit, and the team interplay makes the dynamics of gameplay enjoyable for everyone sitting at the table. And having a rich, detailed world in which to involve yourself, even if it's like Lakefront City or uh, the Mad Mesa Boot Hill, it still had enough to draw you in and get you down for a relatively short but focused campaign session that you could get your feet wet. And if you wanted to expand upon it further, that was up to you. But they provided you enough groundwork to get started with. Well, they also had the initial uh, Conan the role-playing game. Yes, they, and that's where I wanted to end up on a good note. Now, this one, right at the end there, it, uh, it used that uh, color resolution chart of red, orange, yellow, and green success levels. And it was all right. But, man, the source book in there read <laughs> like a mad archaeologist's or... Uh, anthropologist's notebook scrivened in side margins with illustrations and all kinds of clues like what does this mean question marks yeah the conan role-playing game their first stab at it and really taking the property outside of the book for the first time they were able to get the conan property and i thought if given the right type of chance do well with it they also incorporated that in the ad and d modules and this is where they did well when you got to play Conan in the uh, AD&D modules, or Red Sonia in the other ones, yes, mm-hmm. that character was provided, but also stalwarts that were his contemporaries yeah, or hers. It was very plausible to build characters on their own merits who could then function completely independent of, like, you know, Conan or Red Sonia. You didn't have to have the icon characters at the center of gameplay. Uh, it could be a, you know, handful of diverse persons uh, very much in the D&D tradition uh, from a wide variety of backgrounds and then work together towards a common goal. Yeah, just like with Lankmar, you don't have, you're not in any way required to play Vapor and the Great Mouse here. No. You can if you want. I felt like that was a much healthier return to core concept. Yeah, they kept that pretty cool. And I think the Conan role-playing game, you can still find a couple box sets here and there. Uh, they are still kind of pricey, but hey, you know, every once in a while, I've seen them at Goodwill. Now, I wanted to round out the 1980s uh, with, like, three years later, the, the 1988 release. Like, interspersed amongst all this were tons of D&D releases. D&D oh, yeah. constantly new materials coming out. And we haven't mentioned that because as we do the meta pan back, D&D is our specialty already. We're doing the meta pan back on the wide variety of materials that have gotten kind of dropped by the wayside and forgotten. People forget just how varied and creative uh, they were. And 88 was Buck Rogers in the 25th century. Oh, which... oh, before we go too much farther, I think before we get away, let's mention about Rocky and Bullwinkle. Oh, oh no. <laughs> the role play game. Yeah. <laughs> That, that, I believe, came a little bit later, did it not? Uh, I think that was around 88, 87. Anyway, it came with these hand puppets, which at first blush, you would be like, what in the hell did I just buy? 
But when you really embrace it, I mean, just go gonzo. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Also, a few beers or a couple dubers would help loosen you up on that. Yeah, I'm going to say that. uh... (laughs) Oh, yes. The Bullwinkle and Rocky role-playing party game, 1988. Okay, fair enough, 88. Uh, But I, I winded up there because much of what came in the years to come after that were either re-releases of pre-existing material or expansions of D&D only. Uh, Right around 88 is when you kind of see the steam go out of everything else and the focus narrows. And I I don't think they they had like uh, the Amazing Engine in 93. Yeah, but that was the Uh, Lorraine. You know, you can blame a lot of that on Lorraine Williams, which I'm not going to beat her up too much. There's people who do it a lot more concisely than I can, but she wasn't wrong. She needed to right the ship and get them on financial setting. And in that, I do not falter. She she went with what worked. I will falter for, and I continually will harp on this, so just get used to hearing me say this. The whole thing, like, I don't pe- uh, pay people to play games while on the clock in a company that makes games is one of the most boneheaded decisions I think I've ever heard and encapsulates the Michael Scott principle of just not understanding what it is you're doing. Yeah, it, it was a tone deafness that only somebody who really had no personal investment in the you know industry. I mean, other than like they have a financial investment, but they don't have any personal creativity. They're not involved. Right. In, you know, and we can blame they a lot of that make on or play games. So yeah, that's a bean counter's mindset in a creative's chair. And you find we can blame the Broom Brothers for that, it, just yeah. as much as Lorraine. Exactly. The, the, the people who took a corporate mindset and tried to apply it to a creative endeavor, it never works, okay? I mean, it just, uh, one hampers the other or vice versa some way or another. There will always be conflict in there. Uh, there are certain sacrifices you have to accept when dealing with a creative endeavor and like hey for every stephen king who will lock themselves in a cabin and come out with a book in four months uh, because they're just a freaking genius that's great but not everybody can do that and if you're running a corporate atmosphere where like yeah but we need deadlines and uh, continual income and perpetual expansion or our stockholders revolt, uh, you're going to find yourself in conflict with the creative process very, very quickly because the world is not made up of like, you know, 7 billion Stephen Kings. It just doesn't work like that. Right. And, you know, you can take... happens and it cannot be put in a bottle. No, that is very true. Sorry. I want to say that a lot of people say, well, you know, TSR uh, got all corporate because they got... The Bloom Brothers got some publicly traded stock. Well, that was the only way to really get that type of money that was coming in working in your direction. Other companies like GDW, which weren't, look at how Frank Chadwick tanked uh, Game Designers Workshop with that Desert Storm or Desert Shield source book, where he basically took every took all the game mechanics out of pre-existing published material they had and re formatted into a book it was featured on cnn and other places it was big news when desert uh shield was happening and they had to go to third and fourth printings 
before the first one even left <laughs> the uh, yeah the pre-orders were off. The yeah, the pre-orders before the was it the story goes is that before they even made their first shipment, they had to start uh, the third printing and start looking to the fourth print because demand was so high. Now he ended up. This is the first time Zay had had that kind of money, and um, he said, "Yeah, well, Desert uh, Storm started. Let's uh, quit publishing everything and remarket it." And the cost in that and the stalling of getting that out in time because Desert Storm was over in less than what a month. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it it doomed them. But that's just a point of contrition I would have with anybody who said, "Well, you know, this is what happens when game companies stay private." Yet. Game companies, the 90s, we could do a whole episode on the economic impacts of the post-Reagan era and, you know, the ideas of corporate uh, lunacy that went through, the golden parachutes, the wolves of Wall Street, the Gordon Gecko yeah, ideas. That, That's what ruined it, really. Yeah, the mentality was there all along, okay? You, you can't really pin it to a certain era. There's an impulse uh, control issue that... If in your organization you have somebody who's like, let's jump while the iron is hot, there is always the risk of wild overexpansion, which inevitably ends the same way. Like, hey, who's been to an Orange Julius lately? Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, one day there's one cute little store somewhere in a mall, like in Southern California. Uh, two years later, Every single place, like every single major city in the entire United States has at least one. In some cases, two or three. And then, five years later, they're all gone. Well, that's... We could talk about Starbies. Oh. Or Niskers. Well, Starbucks. uh, Starbucks is still around, but those are few and far between. I mean, you don't get a McDonald's and Starbucks all the time. And, And gaming is a unique... Market. The it's 90s crashed different. a lot of people's, um, the people who had grown up supporting and buying these games as teenagers and young adults, grew up, got families, had commitments and obligations that took away from the market. But also role-playing games kind of self-destructed in a way that I don't think anybody could foresee or any planner could. It's that they oversaturated a market that was shrinking at a time when people were looking for something new. And instead of going for something new, a lot of them turn to the same old habits that doomed the companies before. It wouldn't be until, like, some of these companies had some really great ideas and concepts. Vampire the Masquerade, you know, we talk about. But White Wolf didn't survive well because they couldn't sustain that level of interwoven productivity with a product line that had a limited uh, shelf life. The idea that they'd set up everything was going to collapse and be imminent and doom and gloom was just over the corner, but enjoy yourselves while you're here, (laughs) can only be sustained for so long. Yeah, apocalyptic endings were written into the core concept, so (laughs) how ironic that that Ben was. Once they did that, it kind of blew the whole thing out, and I, I, I like the new edition because it has a longer sustainability, but... When we talk about the meta of TSR, I think it was at the right time and it was well handled. But you see how it, as Mike said there, it kind of flattened out right at the end and lost steam. And they just had to go to sustain themselves with what worked. Yeah, they they fell back on the familiar, the comfortable, uh, and the dependable. 
you know, they retreated from the wide variety, which in many cases, that wide variety uh, was not as profitable. So I'm, I'm not dissing them per se, okay? Uh, you back the horse that tends to win the most, and D&D wins by a large margin in that respect. Uh, like both D&D 1 and D&D 2, like first edition, second edition, they were both big hits, and that was like the bread and butter that pays the bills, keeps the lights on. A lot of other things, the creativity, I think we forget its importance uh, because it was not as profitable. The, the wide variety of other games, they didn't make as much money, but they fostered an atmosphere of creativity and love for innovation, which was incredibly healthy and valuable to the overall gaming market. So the role they played and the value they had uh, was kind of a invisible thing. It, it didn't have a metric marker that you would see as like, uh, you know, traditional herbs. You know, like this one earned like 3.4 cents per unit and, and over the other one. It didn't have that kind of marker on it. So you couldn't measure it. No. And so it was discounted as irrelevant. But you'll notice that about the same time, the wave of creativity and the enormous uh, variety ceased. You almost, at that moment, you begin to see the beginning of the end, the retreat from glory. Yep. And it tells me, at least in my opinion, that that level of creativity and innovation is inextricably tied to success. And, you know, where where one disappears, the other soon leaves it, as well. It develops, yeah. So that, that's really where I want to end it on, on you know, yeah, the meta of TSR was, you know, that to paraphrase uh, Frank Zappa, I don't know if it'll sell. Let's give it a chance. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Zappa, there's a man who always went his own way. Right, but when he was talking about the industry uh, record execs, when they first put out their uh, album, they were told like, I, you know, they got they were given a chance. Because that's the way the industry was, rather than being hyper-focused on only success that eliminates the margins of independent thought and creativity. And yeah. hey, we're seeing that with some parts of the OSR. And I, I just got to have to say this today. I got insulted by somebody this week who said that OSR means old shitty rules. Oh, oh cute kid. Oh, uh, yeah, I was like, yeah, nice one. Um, <laughs> So what is that? You guys, the NSR, yeah, <laughs> the new shitty rules. Yeah. <laughs> no, we won't. We don't get into that. But when I was told that, I, I like what another guy, uh, Jedion, says is that OSR shows only show respect, and that's what I think is the best takeaway. Is when you we look back at these games, we're not trying to just encapsulate. Oh, it's just such a golden age. Well, no, yeah, it, I don't I, want to characterize like that. That we don't stuff. have good stuff happening right now because I think right now we have a lot of independent games creators being able to publish and get their stuff out yeah on their own merits without having to pay those prices so i think that's a great and i, I think people who've heard the show also know that uh, you know we're not going to defend like ain't, ain't archaic rule systems that had clear gaping failures and no we will highlight those and go yeah they definitely improved things over this so yeah i i think we're pretty content to uh, both be critics and fanboys at the same time. Yeah. You know, no shame. Just wear it like it is. 
All right. Well, that's going to do it for us. So we're just going to put a bow on it and call it done. So we'll see you. But until next time, may the dice always roll in your favor. We're out. See ya. <laughs>